Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and find them. Be in the book of Proverbs. If you'd like a Bible, uh, just raise your hands. They'll bring one to you. We're in the fifth week of a message series we're calling A Word to the Wise. Word to the Wise. And I would remind you, young pa- parents, uh, if you have your kids here, I think I see, I think we're okay here. And we're not going just off the deep end here, but we are having an adult conversation. Just remind you if you slipped in late, there's places down the hall for your smaller children if you feel more comfortable uh, with that. Welcome those that are online. And those who are down at True Worth, uh, praying God's blessings upon you. We appreciate you giving us the opportunity to connect with you uh, in this way through the miracle of technology. I think all of us would agree that in most every area of life, there is a wise way and a foolish way. And it's true in almost every area of life. Consider driving. I think we would all agree that it's wise to drive on the right side of the yellow double lines, right? We would agree that's wise. Now, take it from someone like myself who is a teenager who got many tickets for driving on the left side of the yellow double lines. It's not wise to drive on that side in an opassing area. Not wise at all. Some would call it foolish. Jet skiing is liberating experience. It is fun to be on a jet ski, even at 50 miles an hour, full throttle, scrutin' across the water, as long as you're properly seated on the jet ski. But if you're like moi, who chose to be standing on the seat, 50 miles an hour, hit a wave, catapulting you in the air, face plant 50 miles an hour, hurts. Not very wise, very painful. Flying. Flying is exhilarating. Flying can be fun. Flying can be really cool in the confines of a plane. But take it from someone who chose to dive off the cliffs of Hell's Gate when they were a teenager, and flying, diving turned into free-falling, belly flop right on the water, very unwise, very painful. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm the only one in the house. But there are a lot of things in my life I have had to learn the hard way. I have had the hard way, that there's a wise way, there's a foolish way. That there is a right way and a wrong way. That there is a way that is liberating and there's the way that is destructive. And I think that we would agree that this is true in every single area of our life except for one. And that is in our human sexuality. For some reason or another, there's something within us that we just want to drive on the left side of the yellow double lines in this area. We just want to get on the jet ski and stand on it at 50 miles an hour, and we want to dive headfirst out to the plane with reckless abandon, and before the squirm factor gets too high in this room, And the silence gets kind of deafening. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge something here and break the ice. I'm going to suggest online, true worth, and those in the house here this morning, none of us have perfectly followed God's wisdom in this area. So let's all put down our stones and put down our rocks. Not be looking in this time that we're teaching together, throwing stones or judging anyone else in this room, that we all are at the same place, just coming as broken people in this area, seeking God's wisdom to get on his path for this. So, we agree to that? 
Make sure everyone in agreement? Okay. If you're not agreeing, I'm not going on. Everybody agree? Okay. Making sure. Cars. Cars were made in mind with the laws of the road. Planes were made with the laws of gravity and levitational full uh, lift and all that stuff in mind. Jet skis made with the laws of water and buoyancy in mind. God made sex with the laws of human nature in mind. Sex is a good thing. It is a really good thing. And so are the parameters within which God created it. And when you and I, husbands and wives, when you experience sex within the confines of marriage, marriage is exhilarating, it's liberating, it's fun, and it's safe. When we step outside the limits of the confines of which God has created for this beautiful, wonderful gift, it's like we are driving on the left side of the yellow double lines. It's like we're on the jet ski standing up at 50 miles an hour. It's like we've dove head first out of the plane. It feels exciting. It even seems exhilarating, pushing the limits. But we're setting ourselves up for a lot of hurt, a lot of heartbreak, and a lot of undesired consequences. And so the book of Proverbs is clear, and the book of Proverbs just kind of warns us over and over again about being careful of being on the wise path when it comes to our human sexuality. Now, before we go any farther, let me make sure I'm clear on this. The Bible is not down on sex. I'm going to say this straight out. I mean, in fact, the Bible is very exciting and positive about sex. And, I mean, if you are married, it is full throttle, open water, stand on top of the jet ski, go for it. It is. In fact, I'm going to read something here from the Bible that some of you are going to be a little awkward about. If you're a prude, cover your ears. Okay? Or you may want to cover your eyes. And I want to remind you, you cannot fire me for reading the Bible in worship. Look what it says, Proverbs chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 18. We'll put it on the screen. It says, may your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her, say it with me. Just kidding. Oh, it's on that. <laughs> Woo! You, you always wanted to say that out loud in worship, didn't you? That broke the ice finally a little bit. Okay. I'll, I'll read on. It says, a loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. I want to make sure you understand this. God is not down on sex. In fact, Bible sex is better than world sex. Bible sex is really good. Because Bible sex is so much more because the world is just a nothing but a full body handshake. But Bible sex, this mysterious, miraculous thing of these two people coming together in this whole person sort of intimacy, not just in their body, but their mind, their soul, and their spirit. Well, the scripture says the two become one flesh. 
And in such a relationship that cements you, that's separate from every other relationship that you have in the world that's reserved for this one special relationship. And so if you are married, intoxicate yourself with each other as much as you desire in this area. God made it and it is good, it is wonderful, it is healthy, it will invigorate your life. Sex is good when you are on the wise path. But we can't stop right there in the scriptures because there's another path. In Proverbs, you cannot not study the book of Proverbs without addressing this issue because it's in your face throughout the chapters. There's another path. And it's a foolish path. And it's a path that leads to this door. This door right here. And we all really know what's on the other side of that door. Few people really think they'll ever go through that door. I'm Christians, I mean, single Christians. Oh, I'll never go through that door. And yet the research is in, 95% will and do and have. Married people, well, I'm not going through that door. And yet all the research is in today in our culture, now just a little over 50%, over 50% will. Somebody tell me, who wrote the book of Proverbs? Who, told, who, who wrote it? Solomon. Who was his dad? David. David, a man after God's own heart, the scripture says, he went through that door. There are none of us in this room watching online, down in true words, that cannot fall from any height, no matter how holy or righteous you think that you are. And the scripture is very clear, and it throws out this warning for us, and this is what we're going to look at this morning, to look at this, this path. That can be so dangerous and risky so we don't get on it and experience the pain and the consequences that are connected to it. So we're going to be in chapter 7. If you want to be there with us, we're going to put a lot of this on the screen. Chapter 7. And I want you to notice something. This is a story. And a story in the context of a teacher who has a class of young married men. And they have enrolled in the school of wisdom. And the teacher is teaching them in this school of wisdom. Now, I believe in this text, that is the context, that there is wisdom for all of us here in this room and watching online. There's wisdom for all of us. Whether you're married or single, whether you're male or female, you're young or you're old, you're a rookie, exploration in this time, sexuality of your life, or you're a seasoned veteran. There is wisdom throughout this chapter for all of us. I invite you to listen for God's teaching and wisdom for wherever you are in this season of your life. Now, something very important I want to notice before we start reading. This story in chapter 7 does not begin on the other side of that door. It doesn't begin there. All the time, I'll have conversations in my office where someone will be talking about on the other side of the door, and they say, Pastor, I just don't know how it happened. It just happened. I will tell you, it just doesn't happen. You just don't wake up and all of a sudden you're on the other side of this door. There are steps that lead up to going through that door. You can go to any bookstore, seven steps to your best of this, seven steps to your worst of this. I'm going to show you the seven steps in the Proverbs 7 to your worst life now. Okay? I'm just going to lay it out, be straight talk with you, and the scripture is clear on it. They're right here in Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to begin reading at verse 6. I think we have this queued up on the screen. If you don't have a Bible in front of you, it goes like this. At the windows of my house, that is the teacher of the young men, at the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice, and I saw among the simple, I noticed the young man, a youth, 
a youth who had no sense. A youth who had no sense. He was going down to the street corner near her corner, down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. Now, back up. So you got the teacher. He's looking out his window. He sees a young man. The young man is just wandering through life. He has no internal motive. He's not looking for trouble. He's not thinking about trouble. He's just meandering around. And all of a sudden, he stumbles upon this place. And here's what we're going to call step number one. Step number one is the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't doing anything wrong. He just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Now, let me say this. You're on a business trip. It's 1 o'clock in the morning. You can't sleep. You go down from your hotel room down to the bar just to have a drink. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Nothing wrong with that at all. Is it wise? Hmm. Maybe not, because right here in the scripture, in verse 7, he said, I saw among the simple, someone who seemed to have no sense, and someone who has no sense, who is not aware, that you can be at the wrong place at the wrong time, and something can happen that you had no plans on happening. See, wise people always are aware of the circumstances in which they're in and the limitations they have on self-control within themselves. Foolish people just keep stumbling along, falling into trouble, even when trouble wasn't there in the first place. Wise people always mitigate risk. Now, we've talked about this. Week one, we talked about in our finances that wise people, so you don't go into debt, you mitigate your risk when it comes to your finances. Everybody has a different tolerance for that. You mitigate your risk in your work. Week two, we talked about wisdom in your work. Remember that? We laid all these things. If you're going to be wise in your work, you mitigate the risk of being perceived wrong. And the same thing is true with your character. That wise people sets up systems of accountability and systems to protect yourself from false accusations and things going wrong or being at the wrong place at the wrong time. For example, if after worship today you come up to me and you give me your offering... Because, oh, pastor, I didn't get my offering. I will not take it. I will not take money. I just don't do it. Because I know there's always the risk of someone saying a misunderstanding. Oh, yeah, did that ever get to the offering plate? I don't want to be any doubt or opportunity for that. No question about it. It's just like in my office. I, I never go anywhere during the day during work hours where someone on my team, someone doesn't know, know where I am, what I'm doing, or how long I'm going to be there. In the evening, I never go anywhere without my wife, Dallas, knowing where I am and who I'm with. I mean, even if I have a late night meeting and the meeting's going to go late and maybe she's even going to be in bed or going to bed, I will text her, I'm going to be late. And when I leave, I'm, I text her, I'm leaving the house so she knows this is how much time before I'll probably be there. It's just respect and it's just smart. I never meet with a woman in my office without someone else on the other side of that door. I mean, just on the other side. I never go in a car. I don't, the woman, I don't want to, I'm not going to get in the car and travel with the woman in my car. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to meet a woman at a coffee shop for a counseling, even one of our staff people. I will not have a staff meeting with a female by myself in a place. And you're saying, pastor, are you being a little overly cautious? Isn't that a little bit too much? I don't think so. I think the scriptures say wise is the person who does these sort of things. And foolish is the person who never believes you can be falsely accused. Anybody watch the news this past week? Past couple of weeks. Foolish is the person who does not believe that wrong may follow you. 
Foolish is the person who does not think that you can fall from any height. And wise is the person who sets up these boundaries to protect them. And young people, listen, listen, young people. This is why in your home, your parents have boundaries on when you can date, when you can car date, not having a girl or a guy in your bedroom by yourself because they are setting yourself up. It's not they don't trust you. They don't trust your experience. In the wrong place, the wrong time, all sorts of things can happen that you're not quite ready for. And so, parents, I want to remind you, when you leave here, if you need help, you can stop at the Jeep. We have these little handouts for any great age group in your home to help you have these sort of conversations that you need to with your children, your young person, about these sort of boundaries and the whys and the how-tos. And hoping this whole thing is going to help you with that as well. So the first step is the wrong place at the wrong time. Very innocent but it's the first step to that door. Here's, let's keep going, verse 10. Then a woman came out to meet him dressed like a prostitute. Now, I want you to notice, it doesn't say she was prostituting herself. It says she was dressed like a prostitute. In other words, provocatively. We're going to call this step number two, which is catching my eye. This is someone who catches my eye. Now, I want to say something about this very clearly. This is going to happen. If you're single, someone's going to catch your eye. In fact, you hope they do. And if you're single, you hope you catch somebody else's eye, right? I mean, you're hoping. And if you're married, let me just say this directly in a way I think most of you can understand. Just because you have a favorite beach destination does not mean you're not going to find beauty in another beach. You got that? Just grow up. I mean, that's just, that, that's just the reality. The question is, what are you going to do when that happens? What do you do when you're married and somebody else catches your eye? When uh, I turned 60, my birthday trip, we have zero birthday trips in a little group that we're a part of. Uh, my, my choice was to go back to New York City for my 50th trip, and I wanted to run uh, six miles on my 60th birthday uh, through Central Park. And so I'm doing that as we're a guy about to come home from our trip, having a great time. And I'm running, and I'm running with different groups of people. I start running with this group. I'm just seeing all the New York people that are running there in Central Park. And then in one of my groups, and I looked to my left, I will tell you, she caught my eye, and I looked again, and this is who caught my eye. Anybody know who this is? When I, when I, got, when I got to my room, I said, honey, Legally Bond was riding with me, running with me. <laughs> Really? And she caught my eye. And she was gorgeous. She had on no makeup. I mean, she had no makeup. Her hair hadn't been washed. She had to do one of those little pink ponytail cap things, the deal, whatever. How did I know that? She caught my eye. But there was no worry in that. I thought, I'm going to call. I'm going to text my brothers. I did not have my phone with me. I would have. And come hold me accountable because they were back in the room, you know, there. And my guys, but they wouldn't have come anyway, probably. Uh, but, but then I thought, there's no risk. This woman's in greater shape than I am. She's getting ready to run but, and leave me, you know. And she did. And that wasn't good either because she was wearing, can I say this in church? She was wearing these very tight, 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 short, huggy, neathy little shorts. And she's right in front of me. I went, Get behind me, Satan, and ran in front of her as quick as I could. I said, no way. I mean, it was right there. My, it was right in front of my eyes. And so I ran in front of her and said, man, I'm going this way, buddy. I'm getting none of that. 
all kidding aside, that's going to happen. Someone's going to catch your eye. Can we just be real about this? What do you do when someone catches your eye? You've got to understand that visual beauty is powerful. This is why with the rise of the Internet, the pornography business has become a multi-billion dollar business. One of the most painful conversations that we have here at the church is when we get a phone call or there's an email from someone who says, my spouse, they're hooked on porn. My teenager. This is not harmless. You need to understand that pornography can enslave you. It can be addicting. Pornography perverts your understanding of what true intimacy is between a husband and wife, according to God's word. It hinders relationships, your ability to really relate to each other. It destroys relationships. Parents, could we just have a conversation here? Would any of you in your home, parents, have a closet full of pornography and leave it unlocked where your kids could get in and out and have access whenever they wanted to? Would you do that? And yet you do. Because if you have any unrestricted access to the internet in your home, any unsupervised internet in your home, you have unleashed your children, your young people, to the biggest unlimited closet of pornography, the enemy of sexual purity that the world has ever known. And it is neurologically debilitating to children. The research has proven it. And today we know 6 to 16, 95% of people in that age group have viewed it and even have the, the urge of addiction. 35 and under, those that are 35 and under, all the research is showing, having more difficulty that are married in true marital intimacy because of the overload, the visual overload off the internet and the loosening guidelines of what's appropriate even on, on Netflix and regular television that they all have access to. Parents, do your future family a favor. Go home today and shut it down. Put a lock on it. Put safeguards and restrictions where your children do not have unlimited access to that closet. Don't wait till Monday. Do it today. 20 years from now. Your kids will thank you. Today they may hate you. They may feel like you've got a thumb and supervision over on top of them. But 20 years from now, when there were a few people as an adult in their generation that can have healthy, normal intimacy between a husband and wife that is biblical and rich and wonderful, they will thank you. Because they're not going to the counselor and the psychologist to wrestle with stuff that's got into their head and skewed their understanding of what God has truly designed the beauty for our sexuality. Do something about it. Now, what do you do, man? What do we do, ladies? What do you do if you're married or or even single and someone catches your eye? What do you do? Over in Job 31.1, we have a little bit of a hint of a cute clue. He says, I'm going to remember the covenant I made with my eyes. 
to not look lustfully, lustfully at another, I mean, young lady, young person. So what do you do? Here's what you don't do, guys. When someone catches your eye, you don't go back for the full HD download. You know what I'm talking about? Not cool. Not good. That's a step toward going to that door. Let's keep reading. Same verse. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. In other words, we're going to call this chemistry because she came out with this sort of sexual attraction already to him. She had this chemistry with him. She felt drawn to this guy. Now, chemistry is not a bad thing. Chemistry, in fact, is a good thing. If you're married, I hope you have lots of chemistry. I do. Here's how chemistry happens. One of two things. One is somebody gives you lots of attention or lots of affection. You like it. It's more attention, more affection normally than you would receive. You like it. You return it. And all of a sudden, chemistry happens. This happens all the time with teenagers via text or Snapchat or some sort of social media site. Kids cannot even be in the same room with each other. And parents, you need to understand the chemistry they they experience is just as real as being physically in the room together at the same time. And it's real. And parents, you just need to understand that. And don't squelch it if that's a bad thing, it's a horrible thing. God made them that way. One of the worst things we parents do is to put this burden, this guilt, all this stuff upon our kids. It's how you talk about it, how you teach about it. Well, they understand the beauty of it within the confines of God's plan. But chemistry, it's not bad by itself. The second way it happens is through sexual attraction. I don't know why it is. There are some people who just have these chemical sexual attractions to each other. It's very subtle. And sometimes you're around someone and you feel this, this connection. It's a sexual connection. And it's not that in itself is not bad. It's something that God made you that way. It, it happens. But you need to understand what is happening so you know how to manage it. And here's what happens. Is that, is that when there is a sexual connection, there's some sort of chemistry in that regard, all of a sudden your brain is getting the rush of testosterone or estrogen. Then you add to that these large amounts of serotonin, uh, neoprenephrine, uh, oxytocin, and all this stuff just comes shooting to your brain, creating this paralyzing, mind-blowing inability to have any discretion at all. It's such a high. It's such a a mind-numbing thing, you cannot think rationally. And if you're married, you don't need to think rationally. Just dive in and enjoy. God made you. That's what gift. But if you're single, what do you do? There's nothing wrong with chemistry. In fact, you hope you have chemistry with someone when you're dating them. There's nothing wrong with that. But young people, this is where you sit down and have a conversation. And you establish the boundaries. This is okay. This is not okay. And you establish the boundaries of your faith and of your beliefs, how you're going to date, where you're going to date, the boundaries. And you set them up to manage the chemistry, which is a good thing. Because if you just keep going back for more and you just keep going back for more because you want that little rush to your brain and how it makes you feel, I'm just telling you, you're moving closer and closer to that door. That's step number three. Let's keep moving. Verse 13, she took hold of him and she kissed him. 
Now, that in itself is not bad. If you're in Israel in ancient times, it's very common they would walk up to somebody and they would kiss them. That's a way of greeting each other. But notice right here, she just didn't kiss him. She took hold of him. You see that? She took hold of him and kissed him. So we're going to call this step four, which is lingering touch. And I'm not going to linger here very long because we all understand what lingering touch is. Young people, you really want the young... I'm so proud of our young people being in the house. I want you to hear this, young people. A lingering touch is when an innocent hand is upon the knee, and all of a sudden, it's not so innocent. A little squeeze, a little extra touch. A lingering touch can be a, a handshake where you shake someone's hand, and you meet them, and all of a sudden, you feel this little pull, and you look them in the eye, and you hold on the hand just a little bit longer, and you have that little smile on your face. You're sending a signal, lingering touch. It's the hug where instead of having a side hug or kind of a partial hug, it's where you go in for the full body hug, and then you give a little squeeze there at the end. Lingering touch. It's when you have a hug and the hand on the back slides down to the small of the back and just a little bit lower than it should, and it kind of presses just lightly, just enough, and it sends the signal. That's called lingering touch. We all know what it is. And in a married couple, lingering touch, it is beautiful, it's wonderful, it sends a message. But when you're single, that by itself is not a sin. It's not. It's not. But you need to know, when you keep pushing the limit, you're a step closer to that door. You're just getting closer and closer. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. He says, she says, today I have fulfilled my vows. And I have food in my house from the fellowship offering. I've got it in my house. I've got food. Come in and eat with me. Now, to understand that, we're going to call this, go ahead and put this in your nose. We're going to call this the candlelit dinner, the candlelit dinner. And to understand this verse, you have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. We're not going to do that. But you go back to the book of Deuteronomy and you study about the fellowship offering. And you're going to learn that God commanded that you must eat the fellowship offering before the next day. You got to eat it that night, all right? So you would think it would almost be rude to not come into her house to help her eat the fellowship offering because she can't eat it by herself. You're just helping her fulfill her commandments of God. And yet when you read the text, you understand there's more than that going on, that she's not just inviting him into her house to taste her home-baked goods. You know what I'm talking about. Can we be real? Now, candlelit dinners, if you're dating, I get it. If you're dating, the goal is to have, you want to get to that table, to have a candlelit dinner. Nothing wrong with a candlelit dinner. Romantic. Wonderful. But here's the thing about a candlelit dinner. It's usually when someone's alone, and they don't want to be alone. And you think it'd be wrong for them to be alone. And so you say, I think I'll go and I will just join them. And you're blind. But when you get to this table, I want you to remember these candles. And you're getting very close. You're playing with fire. And when you play with fire, you get burned. 
If you're not married, just be aware of the risk of getting to this step and getting to this place and the possibilities because you're getting awfully close to that door. Just keep going. That's step number five. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you. I'll look for you, and I have found you. I have covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home till full moon. I'm going to call this the invitation. This is step number six. It's the invitation. And we all know what, the, what you're being invited to at this point. You know what the invitation is. God made you that way. You know what's going on. Now, I want you to see what's happening here. The invitation is, can be very fulfilling because it says right there in verse 15, look, I looked for you. I found you. This is why the invitation itself is so powerful. Because when you get this sort of invitation, you feel special. Who, me? Ah, me? You feel important. You feel unique. You feel special. And who doesn't want to feel special? Who doesn't want to feel loved? Who doesn't want to feel approved and liked and accepted? Who do- we all want that. We do. And how do you turn down an invitation that's so mysterious and so exotic, so daring, feels so exhilarated and liberated, pushed, so intoxicating? I, I want to call this the moment of temptation. This invitation is the moment, the real moment of temptation. There's a verse over in Genesis 4, 4 that goes like this. It says, sin is crouching at your door, just waiting to pounce. This is the point where it's just waiting to grab hold. This is the moment of temptation. And let me tell you what this is like. In the moment of temptation, here's what happens. The limbic part of your brain takes over. And the limbic part of your brain overrides the other part of your brain. That governs, that puts a governs on your passions, your urges, and your drives. And all of a sudden, it's been overridden, and it's just full bore ahead with what you're feeling and what you're experiencing in your body. Which by itself is not a bad thing. God made you that way. But you're getting close to danger and risk if you're not married. They did a study of rats. They put some rats together in a cage. And they put electrons into the limbic system of their mind. And they put a little lever into the, into the cage. And the rat, every time they pushed the lever, it fed their mind, their limbic part of their brain, uh, these electrons. They had in the cage water. They had in the cage food. The rats would push on the lever and push on the lever and push on the lever and feed those electrons into the limbic part of the brain, ignoring the water, ignoring the food until they died of starvation or dehydration. And we as human beings, sometimes when we're not aware, wrong place, wrong time, this whole, this whole scenario here, young people, this can happen in a heartbeat. You're not even aware. I mean, it can get you. 
Where all of a sudden, you get this rush, this chemistry through your body, and you're thinking, whoa, you press on the lever, you press, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want more. And all of a sudden, you've lost all sense of rationality, and you find yourself in a place that you're not prepared and ready to handle. And God made you that way. But learning how to manage this powerful gift is a challenge of maturing adults. And I will tell you, when you get yourself in that sort of that place where the invitation has been given and you're feeling the invitation, it's very hard to put on the brakes and get back on the right path. It is so hard to stop when you get there. That's why you don't want to get there. You want to catch it earlier because when you get there, there's only one chance. There's only one chance. And that's of kicking in, getting out of the limbic part of your brain and the rational part of your brain and start thinking about the consequences of what happens if you go through that door. That's the only hope. You start thinking, what are the consequences for my faith? What are the consequences for my family? What are the consequences for my career? What are the consequences of me going to college and actually being able to go to all? You start thinking about all those things, and there will be consequences. What happens in this sort of temptation, they try to minimize the consequences. That's what happens right here. That's what the woman does. Hey, there'll be no consequences. My husband's not at home. He's gone. No consequences. There will be consequences. There will be psychological and emotional consequences. Serious ones. All the research shows, and I'm just giving no, no stones. This is just for information, wisdom. All the research shows that ladies, young girls, ladies, grow up to be women, who had multiple sex partners in their life, 11 times higher to have elevated depression over the course of their whole journey. It's been proven. It's been proven. I know singles, young people, the temptation is, the temptation is to think that you need to live together. That's conventional wisdom before you get married. That's what conventional wisdom says, that you need to try it out and figure it out beforehand. But God's wisdom doesn't say that. God's wisdom is perfect. And the research shows it. It's not for God to punish or to hurt. It's for God to help you. In fact, here's some information just to kind of share with you. Singles who uh, live together before marriage have an increased 33% of divorce rate. And the low end, on the high end, is over 100%. Men who marry as virgins have a 37% less chance of being divorced. Women who marry as virgins have a 24% chance of a divorce rate. I mean, it's, and why is that? Why is that true? Because here's what this, here's what's true. If someone will do the hard work with you before marriage of being on the wise path, if they'll do the hard work, and it's hard, it's very difficult. I get it. The chemistry is real and powerful. If they'll do the hard work beforehand, they'll do the hard work after you're married. Because being married is hard. There's a, there's a lot of work. It is challenging. And if you get somebody that you know will work with you hard, They'll do it in the midst of the marriage. And it's just, and man, it goes against everything the world has to say. I get it. I get it. And it's challenging. 
It is challenging. And then there's other information. There's the consequences if you're married. We know what the consequences are. If you're married and you go through that door, the likelihood of you seeing your children every other weekend could be pretty high. And the lie, even if your spouse doesn't find out, if your spouse never finds out, it's going to eat away at you, just kind of gnaw at you, because there are spiritual consequences, which is guilt and shame. I've had people in my office, literally on the floor, crying because they could not get clean. They just felt this, this, For real. So what do you do? Hmm. We haven't got to the last step. Now we know what's on the other side of that door, but let's read, let's read the last text. Let's read what it says. And what do you do? Look what it says. Verse 21. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. In other words, he went through the door, and we all know what's on the other side of that door. What's on the other side of the door? Can you open the door? What's on the other side of the door? It's the bedroom. And boy, if you're married, this bedroom is this wonderful, beautiful place of intoxication where your marriage can be sent to, I mean, full throttle and joy is God's gift to you. Go off the chart. What happens if you've gone through this door in your past, many years ago, you're there now, you're there in your mind, you're there in your heart. What do you do? What do you do? I want you to know there's something you can do. Here's what you do. It's the only place. You come to the foot of this cross, all of us, every single one of us, we come to the foot of this cross and we humble ourselves before a loving Father who knows us and who loves us and will say, God, your wisdom is greater than mine. I thank you for that. And I've kind of been foolish. I've gotten off your path. And I want to come back to your path. I want to realign myself with you. And I want to thank you for that. And you come to this table. And at this table, you experience the love of a father. And you get right with God. You just kind of experience his healing, his grace. And then you do something very important. You go back and you close that door. I want you to close the door. Close that door. And you say, I'm not going through that door again. I'm closing it. I'm not going there till I'm husband and wife. I'm not doing it. And you make that covenant commitment. You do that. And then you do one more thing. You start asking yourself some questions. What was it going on within me that put me in that spot where I got there too early? What, 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 what is it within me? What was missing in my life? Can I say something young, to the young ladies in the house with love in my heart? I know some of you were raised in a home where you didn't have a dad that gave you some of the affection that you needed as a young lady, that unconditional love that you needed from a father. And so you found yourself at different times freely with other men, young men as a teenager or earlier or whatever, and you got a good, good father who loves you. 
he can meet every single need in your life that a man cannot meet. Your father, he loves you and he knows you. And there's a lot of men in the house watching online. I get it. I know it. You weren't raised in a home where you experienced the fullness of, of relationship and the example and the witness in, in your own home. And so you find yourself confused about your own sexuality or you got caught up with a group of people. I, I get that. But please hear this also. Leave that behind you. God forgives. And the reason some of us can get off this path is that we've lost the closeness of our relationship with Christ. Because when we're close to him, he meets every need. And he heals. And he restores. And he forgives. And he reconciles. And he washes away So we come to this table. I just ask you to come to receive the healing, the love, and the grace of a good, good Father. Come to this altar. Come to this place and humble yourself, wherever you are, wherever, wherever you are on this issue. And just receive the wholeness and freshness that comes from Christ. God, we thank you for this table, which reminds us of your sacrifice, of your great love for us. These bodies, these human bodies, these flesh bodies of flesh, that sometimes get caught up, God, in this human sexuality thing in ways that are not wise, in ways that are not according to your plan. And so, so God, we thank you for the opportunity to be renewed and replenished at this table. So, God, we come to this altar this morning to receive it. We come to this altar to receive your love and your grace and your wisdom to be reconciled to you and to each other. I ask you to do this, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're invited to come forward as the host. Direct you to receive the sacrament.